Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Father, I ask you to give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying. Give us a heart to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 2 Corinthians 12, the message title, Strength Out of Weakness. Strength Out of Weakness. I believe these simple truths are going to open your heart and mind and in some ways give you a path for radical change and to step into things you've never been able to step into before because of human limitation. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has been boasting about his sufferings because the Corinthians, who really were spiritual sons and daughters of Paul, they had begun to follow other leaders, kind of superstar leaders, the rich and famous, so to say, the big speakers, and the Corinthians were impressed with those kinds of things. They were, they were an ancient Greek city that was very impressed with good speaking and these type of outward qualities. They had the equivalent of, of Olympic Games there, so the athletics and all of that. They were into that, and that was not Paul's style. Paul came with a very different style. And, and they were looking for something sensational and for the superstars type preacher, and they started following these false apostles who weren't even real followers of Jesus at all, but, but they were masquerading as such. And Paul was saying, oh yeah? If they're really apostles, let's compare them to me and see how much they suffered. That's what he's been doing in the previous chapter. He says, i got to be crazy to talk like this, but I'm going to do it anyway. You want to boast? Okay, who suffered more? So he's just finished saying that. We're going to come back to that in a bit. And he says, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Now he's going to talk about himself, but as if he's talking about someone else for humility purposes. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Talking about himself. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Note that word, weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or I say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. So he's saying, yeah, I received these revelations. I was taken up to the third heaven. I received things from God that are unique and special and wonderful. To keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations that was giving me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Amen. Wow. God's power is made perfect in weakness. Not sinfulness, not rebellion, but weakness. God manifests his power through our Weakness. God's way of saving the world is through a crucified carpenter hanging on a tree. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Some translations say infirmities as if he was talking about physical illness. That's not the point here. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. There was a Bible teacher a few generations ago who said the church 
always fails at the point of self-confidence. And I know for me, over the years, that's one of the things that God had to burn out of me and deal with me about was self-confidence. I was confident in God. I boasted in the Lord. I looked to the Lord. But there was also a subtle confidence in me as well. Because I knew certain gifts or abilities that I had, and I knew that God would work through those things. And so without even realizing it, there was a self-confidence mixed with the confidence in God. And God wants us to get to a place where we put no trust in our abilities, our wisdom, our experience, our power, our position, but all trust in God, and then he can use all those other things and work through all those other things. And it's the difference between God adding his blessing to our best efforts versus God bringing us into the realm of the impossible. Here, let me illustrate it like this. If you said to me, okay, you're 66 years old, you're in good shape, six foot two, but you can't dunk a basketball. You ever heard the saying, white men can't jump? Here we go. At best, when I was in high school, my, my hand wasn't big enough to really palm the basketball. So with a volleyball, a smaller ball, at best, I could barely, barely get it over the rim. And that was at best. And that's when I was 18, and obviously in better jumping condition and all this. If I was given the assignment, you must, within one year, be able to dunk a basketball, I believe I could. I believe if I worked with trainers and people that taught me in developing muscles and, and different things, even though I'm nowhere near it now, I feel like it's attainable. I, I feel like it, it could happen. And, and then if I even slim down even more and so on and exercise even harder, it, it's, it's beyond the realm of likely, but it could happen. And then if I did that and they said, or the Lord said, your next assignment is to beat LeBron James in 50 straight one-on-one -on -one basketball games. Well, that, he could be 98 years old, and that's never going to happen. I'm not going to get a point on him or stop him from a point. It's completely impossible. So there's the difference between I could really do it if I work hard and God helps me versus it is completely impossible. And I want you to understand that what God has called us to do, whether it's winning your neighbor, whether, whether it's living in purity, whether it's being a world changer, to really do what God's called us to do in ourselves is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And instead of seeing our weakness, our inability, as a limitation, we need to see it as an opportunity for God to be glorified. Now, I'm going to make this more clear as we go on. I'm going to make it very plain. In fact, that reminds me of a story. I was preaching in 1986 at an all-African-American congregation in D.C., about 600 people there. And even though I do academic work and scholarly work and can, can write very complex, difficult things and deliver in-depth lectures, my preaching has always been very simple and very clear. So I'm preaching away at this church, and in the middle of the message... Someone yells out from the congregation, make it plain. And I thought, I don't know how to make it any more plain. I'm simple, clear, not using difficult sentence structure, highbrow vocabulary. I'm just running through it. It's like, bring it down even more. Simplify even more. And I'm preaching away, and then one of the elders on the platform yells out, make it plain. I thought, I do not know how to make the message any more plain. And then the light went on. Oh, that's the way of saying amen. Preach it, brother. Make it plain. So I'm going to make it plain today. All right. All right. Go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to see throughout 1 and 2 Corinthians this theme of weakness, 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 weakness keeps coming up. And as you're getting there, there was a woman prophetically gifted, was on her way to a banquet 
they were honoring a, a sister, an older sister in the church, and the Lord spoke to her, you're going to have a word for everyone at the banquet. And she arrives, and there's a table of about 12 people, and she says, okay, the Lord wants me to prophesy to each of them. That seemed reasonable and something that she could easily do with the gifting she had. And then these doors swung open, and all, that was just the head table. There were about 300 people there. And she says to herself, how can I possibly give a word to everybody at this banquet? But that's what she had heard. You have a word for everyone at this banquet. And she sees sitting at the lead table this silver-haired lady. This was the lady that was being honored. And she feels compelled to give her a prophetic word. But how could she? It's for an old lady, and the word was, keep on trucking. <laughs> that was the prophetic word for the old, keep on trucking, sister. What? But she knew the voice of the Lord well enough. And she said, sister, the Lord wants me to tell you to keep on trucking. And the whole place went crazy. Because her husband had just died and owned a big trucking company. And the whole church had been praying and saying, God, should she go on with the trucking company? And then gets the word, keep on trucking. And it was a word for everybody there. The point is, this woman saw in myself, I could do this, this, but the other is impossible. And then she just had to lean on God. And then God spoke something for everybody. Sometimes we come to God with our list of why he can't use us. Lord, I'm not qualified here. I'm not the right person for this. No experience here. And the Lord says, perfect. You're just what I'm looking for. And this way, when I work through you, people will know it's me, not you. I mean, picture some powerful healing evangelist. Someone with tremendous ministry, but tremendous stage presence. And I'm just going to kind of put a picture together of several different people, so I'm not thinking of any one. Get up on the stage, you know, just outfit, just perfect, and kind of teeth with a smile, and when the light hits, it like glows, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Oh, I, I feel the presence. Whew, the Lord is healing now. And you're walking, it's like, I don't feel that. First, I don't have an outfit like that. Second, I got lousy teeth. Third, I don't feel that. I don't know how to do like the whoosh stuff. And whew, people are being hurt now. They're healed here, there. Like, I could never do that. And that may just be the person's personality. You get somebody up here. Oh, uh, Hillbilly Joe, glad you're here. Come on up here. Come on up. God's really been using Joe. And he's got overalls, you know, piece of straw in his teeth. I don't know how it happens. Like sometimes, I just, Jesus just comes to start healing people. Like now, I think they're being healed. And people start jumping up and down. I was blind. I could see. You don't think, how is Joe doing it? You don't think, is it the straw? You ask, it's God, it's Jesus, because it's obviously not Hillbilly Joe. And, and this is why God loves to use people like you and me, so he can get the glory. And, and the less qualified we are, I don't mean sold out to the Lord. Of course we've got to be sold out. Of course we've got to give our lives to him. But, but the less qualified we are for certain jobs, or the less ability that we have to make the thing happen, the more glory he gets working through us. And you say, well, what about me? I've got four PhDs. I can speak 19 languages. You know, I, well, God can still use you. <laughs> the key thing is you don't rely on that. You rely on him, and then he can work through all those things. It's strength out of weakness. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says this, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the, intelligent of the in intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, when Paul's writing here, the church in Corinth may have been 50 or 75 people, relatively small group of people. But among them, it wasn't, for the most part, the, the elite of the society. Any more than when Jesus told his disciples, he, he chose the elite. And God can work through the high or through the low. He can work through the rich or through the poor. He's God. But, but Jesus chose fishermen and tax collectors and the most unlikely ones and then worked through them. 
Then he says this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. This was so far into the way the Corinthians thought they wanted the great intellectual message, and Paul's preaching the cross. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And look at this. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. What seems to be a display of weakness, the, the Messiah, instead of ruling and reigning, dying on the cross, that's stronger than all of man's strength. God changes the world through a crucified Jew. Think of it. Not through armies, but through a crucified man. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. There's weak again. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. You don't get any lower than things that are not. To nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And he says this, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony from God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear. There it is again, weakness. And with much trembling, this is Paul. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Paul was as smart as anybody. Paul was as wise as anybody. But he did not want the people to put their trust in his wisdom, but in the power of God. Many years ago, I heard the missionary evangelist T.L. Osborne tell the story that he had gone to Thailand, I believe it was Thailand, to preach. And he preached his first message about the blood of Jesus and explained the significance of the blood and did a lot of teaching about it. And at the end of the message, the, the crowd mocked him and said, you have a bloody God. Buddhist crowd. He went back to his room and cried out to the Lord, and said, so, Lord, I didn't fly halfway around the world to have your name mocked. And the Lord said to him, proclaim, don't explain. You see, he had wanted to make the gospel acceptable in their thinking. He, he had wanted to somehow make it sound satisfactory in their eyes. And that's not what needed to be done. There are times to explain, and there are times to teach, and there are times to proclaim. So he got up the next night, and basically his whole message was just quoting scripture, quoting scripture, quoting scripture, quoting scripture. The death and resurrection of Jesus, the power of the gospel. And next thing, people start swarming the altar, weeping. And he's looking for his translator. His translator disappeared. Where's the translator? He's weeping, and it's not proper for him to be weeping in front of us. He said, I don't get him out here to translate. The power is in the proclamation. We often want it to be in, in our wisdom and how brilliantly we can open this up so people leave the meeting praising us. It was said that, that one couple went to hear one of the great preachers in England in the days of Spurgeon. And, and they left Charles Spurgeon, great preacher in England, Baptist preacher in the 1800s. They went to hear another great preacher in London and left the service Sunday morning. And, and, and someone overheard the, the husband saying to his wife, what a sermon. What a sermon. Then that night, that same couple went to hear Spurgeon preach. Same couple left the service and someone overheard the husband saying, what a savior, what a savior. Even though Spurgeon was brilliant and articulate and eloquent, what he did was exalt Jesus. And rather than people seeing the wonder of this man's eloquence, they saw the wonder of the grace of God through Jesus. God's strength manifests through human weakness. Look at what Paul writes in, in the fourth chapter. He says in verse... Nine, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. So they had the idea that being an apostle made you a superstar. 
apostle made you richer and bigger and more famous and more special and, and more worthy of special attention. And he's saying, to the contrary, we're the least of all and the last of all. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. Oh, you Corinthians, you've already arrived. We are weak. Look at that. There it is again. But you are strong. You are honored and we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We are recovered with our own hands. When we are cursed, we are blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slain and we answer kindly, up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Isn't that remarkable? That's how Paul lived. The mighty apostle Paul. And they were so impressed with the other guys, so to say they drive up to the service in their Rolls Royce and have their entourage with bodyguards, you know, escort them in. And someone, you know, carrying the, the man of God's Bible. Not that they walked around with Bibles then, but you know what I'm saying. And he says, this, this is what we're going through as apostles. You want to be the, we have arrived and have it all. And, he, and Paul did not teach against possessions. Paul did not teach that it was a sin to be rich. But Paul was making clear that having everything in this world does not prove that you're spiritual. So he, he goes on through these things, through these books. When you get to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, look at this, chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4. We say we put no stumbling block in anyone's past, so our ministry will not be discredited. Rather... As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. How? Explain, Paul. Okay, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Whole world completely turned upside down. You say, Dr. Brown, what are the names of these false apostles? We really don't know. He may have mentioned them by name here or there, but really we don't know. But the whole world knows the name of Paul. The one that was beaten and persecuted and, and, and dies a martyr's death from what we know, beheaded for his faith. Letters that he wrote while in prison. It's a miserable little prison. We wouldn't want to spend 30 seconds in there. Those letters are read around the world. Strength out of weakness. God's ways are not our ways. We always think to, to bring about change, we have, to, we have to have all the power. And we have to be in charge and have to be in control. Often the greatest change comes when we're the lowest. The greatest change comes not when we're ruling, but when we're being killed for the faith. And then transformation happens. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says this, verse 9. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful. But his bodily presence is weak, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Old NIV here says that his, his, in person he's unimpressive, but it's literally his bodily presence is weak. He's not some amazing guy. Paul, what gym do you work at? Paul, how tall are you? <laughs> he was some little unimpressive guy. And, and his critics would say, oh yeah, he writes these big, strong letters. But the guy's nothing. One old paraphrase says, you never heard a worse preacher. <laughs> Weak in himself. And then, First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, okay, all these super apostles, they're boasting, they're so special, they're so amazing, I'm going to boast. So I've got to be crazy to do this. But I'm going to do it. These are his own spiritual kids. He's close to them. He said, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. We want to prove that I'm more of a servant of Jesus than they are. Here it is. I am on more TV stations than they are. I have a bigger ministry budget than they do. We own more private jets than they do. My name is better known around the whole world on social media. He doesn't say any of that. Quite the opposite. 
Quite the opposite. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Hey, you get the calling of God? Like Paul, this is the price you pay. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled, and I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? There it is again. And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He doesn't say my failures, my sin, my fallings, my rebellion, but my weakness, the things where I am at the end of the rope, the things and times when, when I cannot do it. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says that when they were in Asia, it looked like it was all over. He said, we felt the sentence of death. In other words, it, it was in one of those ministry situations where they realized, we're going to die. It's all, we're going to die. The kind of thing, okay, do you have a last message for family or friends? Because you're not going to make it through this. You know, you're on a plane, and the plane starts shaking. You realize you're going down. It's like, it's over. It's over. And he says, but this happened so that we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You come to these crisis points in life and ministry where you literally come to the end of yourself. And for some, it's destructive. For some, they fall into depression and hopelessness or even fall away. But if we can rightly understand the dealings of God, when we come to the end of ourselves, that's the beginning of God's supernatural grace. The old saying, man's extremity is God's opportunity. If I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window on the wall and slipped through his hands. He said, I'll, I'll boast about those kinds of things because they display my weakness. And then he says in this next chapter that God's power is made perfect through our weakness. And he says, so when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When you realize I can't do this, when you realize I'm in over my head, then you're strong. Because you think, I can flap my, my arms all the time, but I can't fly. And right now I'm falling out of a building to the ground. God's going to have to give me wings. Years back, I wrote a commentary on the book of Jeremiah. And at that point, as I was working on it, you had different scholars working on different books. And the editors planned to release the whole commentary series all 13 volumes, big fat volumes, at one time. And we were told, you must stay on schedule. Otherwise, it will mess the whole thing up. It ended up they couldn't do that. And it, was, it was published over a period of years. But I remember feeling this tremendous pressure because I was behind schedule. And my own personal ministry schedule was super tight. And I was doing my best to do this. But I was looking at it. And I remember feeling distinctly, overwhelmingly, you're in over your head. You'll never finish this. And it's going to mess up the whole series. I remember feeling that. And if you've ever read Jeremiah carefully, you might notice that the first 20 chapters, after the introduction, it doesn't mention any dates of anything. It doesn't tell you with specific years when anything happened. And many times you don't know. What, let's just say today. Did this happen during the presidency of Biden or Trump or Obama or Bush or Clinton? You know, you need context. You need background. When did this happen? When was this being said? And you don't know it. So I felt it's like one of these giant balls you're trying to pick up and you can't get your arms around it. I felt like I can't get my arms around this book. I can't understand it. And I thought, I, I'm never going to finish on time. And this wave of despair hit me. And I thought, this is exactly the position I'm supposed to be in. 
Instead of, Lord, I can do this with your help, it's, God, I am in over my head, and you're going to have to do something. And I remember I did not like the feeling of weakness, but I knew that's the exact position I needed to be in. And I stayed behind on schedule, behind the schedule until our third grandchild was born, Nancy went to, to be with our daughter, it was her first, spend time with her and help her out with a new baby. There was no school, so our school was closed for a few weeks, and I wasn't traveling. It was a rare break in schedule for a little over a three-week period. And if I wanted to rest extra, I rested. It was before I had my daily radio show. Nancy was away most of the time, so my schedule was free had daily things like everyone to do, but otherwise free. And something happened to my brain. It, it became bionic. I mean, I've had this happen at different times. But I, I remember going out for a meal one night. I'm sitting in the restaurant, and suddenly I grab a napkin, a paper napkin, and start taking notes. The whole book was opening up in front of me. And I just, just writing as quickly as I could. And, and, and I was writing day and night. And, and, and basically, I did one year's work in one month. And then after that, I stayed on schedule. And then, of course, when I submitted the manuscript, a guy writing a commentary on Lamentations had changed his doctrinal views so they couldn't use him anymore, so they had to bring someone else in. That delayed the whole book because my book was coming out with Lamentations. So from the day I submitted it to them, the day it was published was five years. <laughs> so I didn't quite have to be on schedule. But as far as I knew, I had to be at that time. But I remember going through that crisis and realizing I'm in over my head and then God just did something supernatural. I don't mean that the commentary is like inspired like the Bible. I just mean God helped me. He gave me wings to fly. Yeah. Let me tell you something that, that you'll be able to relate to. August 23rd of 2014, so almost seven years ago, I came to Nancy and I said to her, my plan is not working. Specifically talking about my diet, my lifestyle, my weight. I had been a lifelong unhealthy eater. As a boy, I used to have Oreos for breakfast. Some of you are like, they're not healthy? No, they're not healthy. <laughs> I used to have Oreos for breakfast. I've been a lifelong chocoholic. I started eating pizza around the age of 15. New York pizza, real pizza. Sorry. <laughs> and I started eating pizza daily in New York. I taught at a Bible school a couple miles away from a fabulous pizzeria on Long Island. And we estimated that in the four years that I was there, I had 3,000 slices at that place. And they were giant slices dripping in cheese. I'd be there every day, sometimes twice a day. That was my lifestyle, unhealthy eating. Well, when you're younger, you can get away with this more. At least it seems that way. But as I got older, I was getting heavier, putting more weight on. And then I'd, I'd try to make a minor modification. That was my plan. I remember we were living in Pensacola, and Nancy came to me one day and said, Hannah, I think you put some weight on. I said, you're right. I have, but I have a plan. She goes, oh, oh Okay. <laughs> About six months later, she comes to me and says, "Hun, I don't, I don't think you've lost any weight. I said, no, you're absolutely right. I haven't, but I have a plan. Said, oh, okay. <laughs> six months or a year later, she comes to me again. She says, I think you've actually put on weight. <laughs> I, I said, no, I, you're right. I have, but I have a plan. And she looked at me and said, your plan is not working. <laughs> you know, I'll cut back on M&Ms here. I'll have a little less fries here. It just it wasn't working. And here I was, 275 pounds, so I'm, I'm a big guy, I get away with it on a certain level, I was, I was obese, that's the reality. I had high blood pressure, that's called the silent killer, because something can happen, you're gone. My cholesterol, it wasn't super high, but the bad was, was way high and the good was way low, so that was way out of whack. I had headaches several times a week, maybe three, maybe four times a week, and I just have to push through it, persevere through it, take ibuprofen or Advil, whatever. Constant lower back pain. And tired, tired. Now I was productive. I was going day and night. I was, I was working out. 
I was doing daily radio. I was traveling around the world, but I was getting tired. And I said to Nancy, I said, I don't know how long I can keep a schedule like this. And she'd never heard me talk like that because I'm Mr. Enthusiastic. And the way I live every day of my life is today is good, tomorrow is going to be better. I am just ridiculously optimistic by nature or by walking with God. I mean, literally. I, I can be having a salad, same salad I have every day now. I can be having a salad, I'm halfway through, and I'm thinking the second half is going to be even better. I mean, it's the exact same, all the exact same, nothing different about it. That's just the way I think. I mean, I catch myself thinking like that. Mm, it's going to be even better. It's like it's the same salad. <laughs> so she had never heard me talk like this. And I said, I don't know how long I can keep my schedule going like this. And that, that concerned her, because she never heard that. In my mind, I, I want to pick up speed. I, I want to go harder and, and, and run even more effectively in, in the years ahead. So I said to her, my plan is not working. I had been crying out for months. I was just embarrassed by being overweight. And I thought, it's just, I live a disciplined life. It's not in keeping with my testimony. I don't say it to embarrass anyone. Food is very challenging, and everyone's life is different. But I'm just saying how I was feeling. So I was crying out to God to help me. And Nancy was really praying. She was really burdened. And, and, and we've been married over 45 years now. So this is a few years back. But in all the years I've known her, she has never seriously warned me about something without it being real. I'm sure Pastor Jacob would say the same about you. <laughs> just, she's just known things uh, uncannily for decades. And she was warning me, look, you can't live the way you're living and work out the way you're working out with high blood pressure. You're crazy. So I knew I've got to take this seriously. So she was concerned. She was really praying. But the problem was, I was a food wimp. I hated the thought of new foods. And, and I, I would rather starve than eat broccoli. <laughs> I had often said overseas... I would rather preach to an angry, potentially violent mob than try new foods. And I demonstrated both. I mean, I've done it. I've risked my life preaching the gospel without hesitation. You're not going to find anyone bolder, more full of faith. I mean, I'll just go for it. I don't even think about it. People often say to me, Dr. Brown, you have such tremendous courage. It's like, well, the Lord said do it. Where's the courage? He said do it. You know, the lion is roaring. Who can but fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So I've done things that people are amazed by. I can't believe you did that. It's like, well, the Lord wanted me to. I can only obey. But when it came to new foods, like, no. It's like complete limp with it. I mean, I'd be overseas, and I'd much rather have a glass of water and, and dry bread than try some new food. So how in the world am I going to make a radical lifestyle change? Nancy had made a radical change earlier. And it had gotten rid of food she'd eaten for years, and it changed her life. And she was eating heavily plant-based, and we were following Dr. Joel Furman's guidelines. She was eat to live. But I, I, just, I can't do it. Number one, I'm a wimp when it comes to food. Number two, I'm traveling around the world. I can't pick and choose diet and flying 40 hours to India. and you know, How's it going to work? But I knew I had to make a change. So I said to her, August 23rd, my plan is not working. And she said to me, nothing passes through your lips without my approval. You only eat what I give you to eat. So I thought, I have to, I have to do it. I have to do it. Otherwise, I'm going to get heavier, or, and something's going to happen. I'm going to die prematurely or, or just get too run down to minister or whatever. I have to do it. So I went through three miserable days of withdrawal. Listen, when God set me free, December 17th of 71, I said, I'll never put a needle in my arm. I was shooting heroin at that point, and he set me free instantly. It was much easier for me to give up the needle than to give up chocolate. <laughs> much easier. On the third night, I pleaded with the Lord. I felt miserable. And I knew, I knew I'd learned a little bit that this was good. This meant toxins were leaving my body. So all these poisons were in my body. They were now leaving. That was a good thing, but it felt miserable. On the third night, I cried out to the Lord. I said, Lord, when you saved me, Jesus was so real to me. I didn't care about anything else. And I said, you've got to be that real to me now to get me through this. 
I remember crying out, surely the power of the Spirit is greater than the power of chocolate donuts. I remember crying out for victory. And the next day I was fine. It was good. Every day Nancy would send me pictures of people of transformation or quotes from Dr. Furman. You're like, you'll, you'll never fill your life goals if you're chronically ill or sick and, or chronically ill or dead. And just these strong words and encouraging testimonies. And so I'm, I'm doing better. I'm doing better. And, and I'm isolating. Okay, I understand. I, I don't just eat because I was addicted to certain foods. I don't just eat because I enjoy the foods like many of us, right? That's fine. But I also eat because it's my reward. Food is my reward in the midst of a heavy ministry schedule. Because, hey, preach morning, afternoon, evening, go back to your hotel. I'm not going to watch porn. I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not going to get high. But I can eat. <laughs> and I had it all worked out when you get to the hotel and they got freshly baked chocolate chip cookies waiting. That's a gift from God. <laughs> and they're free. It would be bad stewardship not to take several. If they didn't have it, just take how many you want. I'd grab a, eat a couple then, put the rest in the refrigerator. And you're at the airport, of course you can eat what you want. You're at the airport. Of course, I'm, I'm two 15-hour flights. Of course I can eat what I want on the flights. I'm in this country, of course. So I had it built in. I remember, as I began to isolate this mindset, I thought to myself, why would I want to take the grandkids to a, a fun children's movie if I can't eat non-parels and popcorn? And it hit me the purpose of going to the movies with the grandkids is to have fun with the grandkids. You can eat non pearls and popcorn anytime, but when you took the food element out, everything lost its, its flavor. So I, I renewed my mind. Food's not the reward. Food is the fuel for a healthy life. And then started to eat differently. Massive salads. And fruit. I never ate fruit. For some reason, I was never a fruit eater. As a new believer, I remember taking a step of faith and putting a brownie down and eating an apple and it just, nothing changed. <laughs> so I hardly ever ate fruit. Nancy would send me to the grocery store and said, you need to get this, this, and this. I said, what does it look like? I don't know, what, what is that fruit? So now I'm eating more fruit in a day than I'd eat in a, a month or a year. And, and we realized, okay, sweet tooth, that's a good thing for, for natural sugars, fruits. And so I'm learning this. Okay, good, good. Renewing my mind, getting, getting set around this. And by the way, by God's grace, I'm going on seven years now without, without exception. And, and for me, you know, when, when pastors would pick me up at the airport and see the, all the weight I'd lost in life transformation, the first thing they'd ask me, they said, how often do you cheat? And I, I'd say to them, how often do you cheat on your wife? That was my answer. <laughs> so I'm in this about two or three weeks. About two or three weeks into this, Nancy gets a great kick out of the story. We actually wrote a book together, Breaking the Stronghold of Food. She said, you've got to put this in the book. I said, oh, I'm going to. So I, I, I come home from my radio show, take a nap, wake up, and then I've got to go teach a class at our ministry school. But I wake up with this tremendous desire for something sweet. Now, addiction's been broken. I'm good with that. I'm thinking, okay, fruit. It's supposed to have fruit. I just need some fruit now. Somehow there's no fruit in the house. There's no fruit in the house. So I, I think, okay, I, oh, late, I got to run. I don't have time to go to the grocery store. Oh, convenience store, maybe, maybe a convenience store. You know, get a gas station. Maybe they got something in the fridge there. First time in my life I went to a convenience store at the gas station looking for fruit, right? But I go, there's no fruit. It's like, oh, gosh. And, what am I going to do? And I, I feel like I'm, you know, I need something. And, and Nancy said, don't have fruit juices because they have all kinds of bad sugar in them. So I see naked juice. I said, maybe naked's okay. Maybe it doesn't have the bad stuff. And so I, I get one of those and, and I, I drink half of, half of the, the bottle and, and I'm sitting there about to teach a class. Literally, it's two minutes before seven and the class starts at seven. Teaching on Jesus revolution. Two minutes before seven. And I hit bottom. I absolutely hit bottom. And I began to think, this is what you're going to live the rest of your life? <laughs> Never going to have ice cream again. Never going to have M&M's again. Never going to have a slice of pizza again. Have to struggle to find a little juice. To, you're going to live the rest of your life like this? And I, I, I lost it. I sat in my car and began to sob. <laughs> I said, I can't. I can't. 
<laughs> Lord, I'm tears pouring out my tears. I can't. But the other part of me was watching from the outside. I, had to, I was literally looking down at myself laughing. Literally laughing at the weakness of that slobbering person there. With this text, 2 Corinthians 12, all over me. This is just what you need. You need to come to the end so God's strength can be manifest in your weakness. That, that was the breaking point for me. I can't. He wanted me to get to that point. For many of us, before I can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you have to get to the I can't. The inability, the helplessness, the hopelessness, the weakness. And, and suddenly, I, the reality hit me. This is just like with the Jeremiah commentary when I hit bottom. This was a deeper bottom. This was a much deeper bottom. I hit that, and I knew right then, this is it. Here's the grace. I, I wiped the tears from my eyes. God changed the subject I was going to teach on, went in, and it turned out to be the divine subject to lead into a guest speaker I had with me. And I mean, it was just, I thought, isn't that gracious of the Lord? <laughs> I'm completely wiped out, weeping in the car, and still God speaks to me what to teach on, and it was the exact thing to lead into what the other guy was going to say. And that was it. I, I had a couple of times, like in an airport, six hours between international flights and nothing to eat, feeling like, ah, I wish I'd brought something. Or, I mean, bothered a little, but I've never had a crisis since then. I mean, I'm in restaurants with people constantly, and Thanksgiving, never a problem. Don't feel deprived, thriving. And, and I went, I'm a little higher than this now, I'll get back down, but I went from, from 275 pounds to 180 in less than eight months. My blood pressure went from 149 over 103 to about 105 over 65. Cholesterol completely reversed and went from about high of 230 down to about 135. And the lower back pain disappeared, gone. And headaches. How about seven years without a headache? How about that? I mean, my whole life's transformed. Energy level and strength and mental sharpness and, and a bunch of other things have happened as well. A friend of mine is a medical doctor, one of the top doctors in America, and he said, hey, let me run your blood test for you. So instead of just doing the normal thing, you get a page, he takes 14 vials of blood. And then I get a 35-page report. And he was going through it with me. He was laughing. He said, he said, some of your levels, this is what we strive for as an ideal level for a man in his 20s. And so it's, it's but here's the whole deal. I'm going to close in a moment. The fact that I'm up here talking to you about healthy eating. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it would be more likely that I beat LeBron James in basketball. Can, can I go again? another minute? Is that okay? Okay. Do you remember back when Trump announced he was going to run for president? It seemed pretty unlikely. I mean, we got used to it, but when he first said, it's like, Donald Trump, president? When people said he's going to win, they got mocked for it. So if I got up, I used to ask people, what would be more likely if I said to you when Trump announced he was going to run for president that Donald Trump is going to be our next president and he'll get in with the support of evangelicals as a strong pro-life candidate that he will get in or there'll be revival in every city of America, which is more likely? We probably all would have said revival in every city of America. If I said which is more likely, Donald Trump will be the next president elected largely with the help of evangelicals because he's such a strong pro-life candidate, which is more likely, that or that Michael Brown will be a poster boy for healthy eating? They'd always say, Donald Trump. No question about it. I'm saying it was that unlikely. The fact that I can be up here. I was just showing the guys before the service a, a video. My, my regular workout partner is a, is a WWE superstar wrestler. We actually filmed the video, we, you know, messing around where I provoke him and he choke slams me. Well, it looks like he does. I mean, he picks me up in the air. I mean, he's this monster of a guy. But I love the Lord, solid believer. So I get to mentor him and pour into him. But we work out to you. This crap 66. The fact that I can be up here saying this, there's only one thing to say is that God's very gracious. God's very gracious. I looked for every instant solution, you know, and... I remember once I was flying and I saw this stuff, it was weight loss cream, and you, you, put, it on your, you put it on the fat parts of your body. 
<laughs> and it would help reduce the fat. And without telling Nancy, I, I bought it. <laughs> I tried to use it, and you put it on. It was the most miserable smell. Then you put your pajamas on top of it, or whatever, t-shirt, whatever you're wearing, and they're all stinky. It's like, how do you even use this stuff? Finally confessed you know, years later after I threw it out. The energy pills. All my friends say, oh, Mike, you got to try this energy pill. It's amazing. I'd take like eight of them and feel nothing. That was the best one. It was one pill. You got all the fruits and vegetables you needed for the day. And then when you slept, you'd eat whatever you want. When you slept, you'd lose weight. I tried that. But we were joking. It's still my mentality to find instant solutions, you know. But if God could do that in me, he could do anything through anybody. So I want to encourage you here. I want to encourage you. We said heavy messages through the weekend, even this morning. I want to encourage you to allow God to bring you into a different place and to understand the meaning of strength out of weakness. And rather than finding your limitations and your struggles, well, I've been divorced, I'm single, have this pressure, I'm sick, I've got... Rather than looking at that as an inability, look at that as something through which God can be glorified. So, Father, I pray for this precious flock. And I pray, God, out of our weakness, out of our limitations, out of our inabilities, that you would be glorified. That you would do a work in us and through us that people would recognize this must be God. Father, we ask you to take those who are helpless and hopeless, those that are addicts and lost, and as you save them, use them, Lord, to be champions in this city. Raise up the least of these to do incredible works. And those who are positioned and who have authority and who have finances and have all these abilities, may they learn not to trust in Doraz, their giftings, but to trust in you. And then you can work and be glorified through them. Teach us the meaning of strength out of weakness, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.